Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, I also want to say welcome to The Chapel. If we've not met, my name is Steve Elworth. I'm the Chapel Segan site pastor, and so glad to be with you as we continue in our Genesis series. You're going to hear about this more at the end, but I want to remind you that next week is our next Chapel Segan family lunch. So we would love for you to come with us. It's so much better and easier to meet each other and get to know each other's stories when we're sitting in circles and around tables and eating food rather than just sitting in a room like this. So we would love for you to plan to join us. Uh, you'll see where you can register at the end of the service, but I just want to extend my invitation. I would love for you to be there. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, I remember going to a training to, to learn more about God's heart for the nations and more about how to share the gospel with international students that come from around the world. And I'll never forget something that the, that the speaker said. They said, if you really want to get to know how you can talk to people and, and, and the things that they believe, the things that they value, if they're coming from another religion, it would be helpful to read some of their holy books. For example, the, the Quran from, uh, from people people uh, from an Islamic background. And he shared this all over the world. Um, but while he was telling us this, he came or he told us about a woman after one of his trainings that came up to him and said, now I, I really feel uncomfortable about having a Quran inside of my home. I, I don't know what it's going to do. I don't know if I read it, what it's going to do. And I just feel really uncomfortable with this. And uh, I'll never forget his response to her that he shared with us. He said, you know, that's interesting. I have read the Quran, and as I was reading the Quran, I never felt my temptation to lust increase. But a couple of years or a couple of weeks ago, I was watching the Super Bowl halftime commercial. And you know, I did feel my temptation to lust increase. So here's what my wife and I decided to do. We got rid of all of our TVs and we kept the Quran. Now, my point in telling that story is not to say that the Quran is good or that TVs are bad. But one of the things that I have increasingly noticed is that as a culture and as a church, we have become less and less aware of the things from our world that are shaping us. And I think often we don't recognize how much we are being discipled by the world around us. This woman was struggling and, and fearful to bring something into her home that she didn't understand because she was afraid of how it was going to shape her, but she hadn't given a second thought to the things that she had been letting into her home through TV because that was so natural for her. And the question that it gets me to start wondering is, do we recognize how much we have been shaped by the world around us? Do we know where the things that we believe, the things that we value, the things that we let in, the things that we hold true, do we know where they've all come from? Some, of course, we've intentionally decided, but there are so many things in our lives that I wonder, do we know where they have come from? Have we intentionally chosen them or have they shaped us from the world around us? Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
I think if we stop and think about it, there will be many things that we discover in our lives and in our minds and in our value system that we don't really know where they came from. They have just naturally come about. And the problem is if we let things in our lives naturally come about, the way that they come, the way that we are shaped naturally will be to be conformed to this world. And there's lots of questions that are really important that our culture and the world around us is trying to give answers to. And I wonder sometimes if we know where our answers to those questions come from. Questions like, who am I? Questions like, who gets to decide who I am? Questions like, what is my identity? Are our answers to those questions more informed by the creator of the world or conformed to the culture of this world? Now, one of the fundamental aspects of Genesis 1 and 2 that we didn't get a chance to dive into over the last two weeks is that we are created in the image of God. That that is one of our primary identifiers. We are in the image of God. And we zoomed past that when we were in Genesis 1 because we knew we were going to come back to spend our time just in three verses in Genesis 1 to unpack a little bit of what this means for us. We're going to be back in Genesis 1, verse 26, 27, and 28, looking at what this identifier, what our identity of being in the image of God really means means. And the question that I want us to wrestle with today, and I think for many of us, we will need to wrestle with it. The question is, will I receive what God says about who I am, or will I be self-determining? Will I receive what God says about who I am, or will I be self-determining? So we're going to be back in these three verses in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 1. And I was thinking, I was like, man, finally, we don't have to go through a whole chapter. We just have three verses, so there's not going to be that much to say, right? There's a lot to say. And I think it will leave us even wanting some more. So there's three handlebars I want to give you as we go through this today. This is what I hope we leave with together. I hope we see that we have indeed been conformed to this world. Some of us more than others, in some ways probably more acceptable to the culture or to the church than others, but we have been conformed to this world. And I think it's important for us to reflect on that. Two, I want us to reflect on the idea that we are made in the image of God. And what does and can that mean for us? And number three, we need to know what to do when those two things come into conflict. When the ways that we've been conformed and the desires and the expectations and the feelings inside of us are different and sometimes opposite from what the Word of God gives us, we need to know what to do when those two things conflict. And one of the ways we're going to do that is we're going to look at some topics today that are hot-button issues in our culture. And it's difficult and heavy to talk about some of those things, but I want to say up front that my goal is not for us just to tackle some issues in our culture. My goal for us is that we would be able to look at any of the issues that come at us for the rest of our lives through a biblical worldview. Many of you maybe have heard this analogy before, but when the FBI trains agents to be able to differentiate between real currency and counterfeit currency, they don't give people all of the counterfeits to study. They give them the real thing. 
they give them the currency and they say, I want you to know this so well so that when you see something different, you'll be able to know immediately that that's not the real thing. If we were just to study all of the counterfeit bills out there, it wouldn't work. There'd be way too many out there and they're constantly changing and often they're getting more and more like the real thing. So the way to know that something is counterfeit is to know the truth so well. And that is my prayer for us. That as a church, we would know the truth so well so that we can focus on Jesus, we can focus on his truth for this world rather than just having to stand up and rail against all the hot button issues that come our way. And unfortunately, one of the problems that the church in America has given to itself is we have become known for the things that we're against rather than the things that we're for. We have become known for a people that will stand up and rail against things that are against the word of God rather than being a place where people can come and be exposed to Jesus. And that's the type of place that we want to be, where people can come and ask their questions and be able to experience the life-transforming message of Jesus. I want us to know the real thing so well that when anything comes at us, when we see it or touch it or feel it or hear it, we'll be able to know that it is indeed counterfeit from what God has given us. So there's a lot before us today, so allow me to pray for us towards that end. God, we are so grateful for Jesus and that you have revealed your word to us that we can know you. And I pray that you would open our eyes and our minds to hear from you that we might know you so well. We might treasure Jesus so much that when anything else comes in to compete, we will know that it is not as satisfying and as true as what you have revealed. So God, we want to encounter you today. So if there's anything I've planned to say that's not of you, take it out of my mind. If there's anything you want to say that I've not thought of, I invite you to come and speak because we want to encounter you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've been with us over the last two weeks, we went through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, looking at two different perspectives of the creation account. And what we got to see is God introduced himself as the creator of everything. Everything that is, he created out of nothing. Last week, we got to see that God wasn't just creator of everything and creator of humanity, but he abundantly blessed humans with everything we could need. In the garden, they had meaning, they had purpose, they had companionship, they had prohibitions that would protect them. They had everything they could ever eat that was satisfying, not only to the taste buds, but also the beauty and the color and the variety that he had given us. We saw that he's a God of abundance that has given us everything that we need. But what we'll see today is he didn't just design a world and a purpose within the world, but he actually designed who we are. So read with me in uh, Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move about the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. 
fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the ground. Now, many people have written about and tried to define what exactly does it mean to be made in the image of God. And what we see in these verses is the text doesn't actually give us this is what being in the image of God means. But there are three things that from these verses that I think we can look at to show us what does it mean for us to reflect on the idea that we are made in the image of God. And the first is this, the image of God has been given authority. Now, for the grammar hawks in the room, I know that sentence doesn't necessarily make sense. I'm using the image of God as a placeholder for humanity. So the image of God being men and women have been given authority. Now, one of the first and most important ways that we can come to the Bible and look at it, if you're, just, if you're reading it and you're trying to figure out what it's saying to you, is to look at a couple of structural things like repetition. If you see something that's repeated in a short span, that means that it's important and we should probably pay attention to it. And if we look at the structure of Genesis 1, we see that every little unit in that chapter is introduced with, then God said... So we know that these three verses are are one unit because it's separated by that phrase. And in that unit, we see something repeated twice. It's the idea that we are to rule and have authority over the rest of creation. Not only is it repeated, but it bookends the section. So as we're reading through it, that should be something that jumps off the page to say, hey, pay attention to this. This is important. And part of the uniqueness of men and women in the created order is that we are given responsibility and authority over the rest of creation. Everything else that God created, God said men and women are to rule and have authority over these things. And many people have called this the creation mandate. We are to rule and subdue, but really what that means is to care for, to steward to cultivate, to maximize. Christopher Walken says it this way. He says, so Adam and Eve are not to possess nature, but neither are they merely to conserve it, much less worship it. They're to develop it by continuing the order-bringing work that characterized God's own creation. Part of being in the image of God is we our co-creators with God, not creating anything from nothing like he did, but being placed in the canvas of creation to care for it, to steward it, and to maximize it. Now, there's so much that we could say here, but I need to move through this point quickly. But in a lot of ways, Mankind has not done a good job with this. Rather than cultivating care for the rest of creation, we've often abused it and wasted it and used it for our own benefit. Man was given to cultivate the earth while submitting to God, but because of sin, it's been flipped to where we want to cultivate ourselves And we want creation and sometimes even God to submit to us. That's what will naturally happen. 
And we don't have a lot of time to talk about those implications, but I think it's important for each of us to leave from here meditating a little bit about what does that mean? The idea that we are stewards over this world, that we have been given authority over this world, but I'm not going to spend my time talking about that. I want to look rather at something that we don't see in the things that we're to have authority over. We could get a lot of insight by looking at the list of things that we are given authority over, the the birds and the sea creatures and everything that moves along the land, all of these things. But I think it's significant that there's something missing from the list. And what we see is that we are not given authority over ourselves. Mankind is given authority over all of creation except itself. What sin does, what sin always does, is inverts what God intended. Anytime sin touches something, it moves in the opposite direction of what God had originally intended in order to be the best and most blessed state for mankind to live in. And our tendency, rather than to have authority over creation is to have authority over ourselves, to define ourselves, to cultivate ourselves, to improve ourselves, to be the arbiter of our own identity. And we live in a world where it is getting harder and harder and harder to embrace and receive that our identity comes from outside of ourselves. So we are given authority over creation, but not having authority over ourselves leads to our second point. The image of God has been given identity. The image of God has been given identity. And I think this might be one of the hardest truths for people that live in 2023 to accept. Because everything around us, the narrative of the world around us, is trying to convince us that our greatest value and purpose in this world is to define ourselves and to be the best version of who we really are on the inside. That we are supposed to be someone that shows themselves to the world. And that nothing externally will tell us who to be and what to do. But inherent in being the image of God is not to be one that is reflecting ourselves to the world, but we are to be a reflection. So I have a mirror on stage. I apologize if the light hits, hits people as it goes. That's kind of, if you're falling asleep, I know what to do. A mirror has only one purpose, to most clearly reflect that which is looking into it. The best thing that we can do to a mirror is just look into it. Anything else that we do to a mirror is going to make the reflection less real. If we try to spray something on this and kind of make the mirror look good, it's going to reflect more poorly. Anything that we try to put over to cover the mirror, it's going to reflect more poorly. If we try to change the angle so that we're not really seeing ourselves, it's going to reflect more poorly. If we try to put something in front of it, it's going to reflect more poorly. 
The only thing that a mirror is intended to do is reflect that which is looking into it. And as an image of God, we are a reflection of God. But whenever we try to be our most true selves outside of the definition that God has given us in the image of God, we are spraying over, putting over, covering over, putting something in front of the image of God as it was intended to be. Now I'm going to put this back over here because Amber will not be happy with me if I drop the mirror. But it's important for us to reflect on the fact that as an image of God, we are to be a reflection. This is what theologian John Stott says about it. The biblical revelation reminds us that human beings are not self-explanatory. They derive their meaning from outside of themselves, from God in whose image they are made. We are not autonomous individuals, creating ourselves constantly by the decisions and choices that we make. No, we are images. We are reflections. The dignity of our humanity is derivative. It comes from him whose image we bear. We are dependent beings. This is what it says in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, male and female have become buzzwords in our culture today, haven't they? And like I said, I want to give us a lens to be able to look at any issues, any buzzwords, any cultural phenomena that come at us. But as these words are in the text, I want to take a minute to talk about it. What we see is that the text gives us, it says male and female are attributes of our identity. Our identity is in the image of God. Male and female are attributes. What our culture has done has flipped it. And it said male and female, or whatever we want to call ourselves, is our identity. So why, why does the text talk about male and female? Well, I think what it's trying to do is give us a complete picture of what the image of God looks like. It's not intended to be a limiting source. It's intended to give us the complete picture of who God is. What we saw last week is that male and female is how God completely shows himself to the world. You cannot see the full image of God in just a man or in just a woman. It is the full diversity of male and female that the completeness of God is seen. But today, male and female is limiting. And many would just say, that's too small and confined. Why don't we just let everybody decide for themselves what they are supposed to be? Isn't that the best way to make sure that we're maximizing ourselves and being the best version of ourselves? Maybe we should just let everybody choose the identity and the attributes that are there. This is logic that is used in many things today when it comes to marriage, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to gender, when it comes to really any issue the logic right now is do what feels good and don't let anyone from the outside tell you who you're supposed to be. But at the risk of going down too deep of a philosophical rabbit hole, that's not possible. It is impossible to define yourself in a vacuum. It is impossible to just be the fullness of who you feel like you're supposed to be and what you want to be on the inside. 
Timothy Keller uh, was a pastor in New York, prolific author. He passed away this year, but he had a really great way to think about this. He said, picture a medieval soldier from hundreds of years ago. He's big, he's strong, and he's angry. And every desire within him is to hurt people and to kill people. And that makes him really good at his job. He's also attracted to men. Now his culture would say, you need to embrace the culture of anger and killing people and hurting people. We praise you for that, but that other desire you need to suppress. We will not allow that. Now picture a modern day man in a big city, say Manhattan. He's big, he's strong, and he's angry. And every desire within him is to want to hurt people and kill people. He's also attracted to men. His culture would say, you need to suppress your desire for anger. In fact, you need to go to anger management. You need to go to a counselor because we will not accept this. We will not allow this. But you need to embrace your other desire. We will praise you for that. The reality is every temptation and desire that is contrary to the image of God has been in existence ever since Adam and Eve. But every single culture, whether they know it or not, has determined the things that will be accepted and the things that will be rejected, the things that will be embraced and the things that will be suppressed. So it is impossible in a vacuum to just define who we are based on how we feel with no external information. Every one of us and every person in this world will define their identity from an external source. The question is, is it going to be from the word of God or is it going to be from the word of the culture? Those are the only two options. And so back to the original question. Will we receive what God has said of us or will we be self-determining? Now, it applies to every area of life, but in this cultural moment, these issues of gender and sexuality are at the forefront. And the sad reality is that the church has not been helpful. The sad reality is that the church has either on purpose or inadvertently said, there are some areas of brokenness that are less okay than others. If you struggle with heterosexual brokenness, that's okay. You're normal. If you struggle with homosexual brokenness, there's, that's something different. The church has said, there are some questions that you can come and ask, but don't ask some of these other questions when, it, when it's like surrounding gender. But here's the reality. We all bring brokenness to the table. We all bring sexual brokenness to the table, whether it's things that we've seen or done or expect or desire. And all of our brokenness that we bring to the table needs to be placed at the feet of Jesus. And it is only through his death and his resurrection that any of us can find hope, that any of us can find forgiveness, that any of us can find healing. And that's what I'm praying that this church, Chapel Segan, would be. A place where anyone can come 
and be welcome and get to hear the life-changing message of Jesus. That we would not be a place that is only railing against the issues in this world, but we would be a place where those that don't feel like they have anywhere else to go can come and ask their questions, can come and have their doubts, and come and see Jesus. Let's be a place that what is known about us is our love for Jesus and the things that he has done, not the things that we're against. Jesus left the church behind to make Jesus known to the world, not to make the things that we hate known to the world. And this needs to be a place where anyone can come and experience the message of Jesus. But I also need to let you know what that means. We are going to pursue the true image of God together. And the only way that we can do that is for all of us to bring our brokenness to bear, to put it at the feet of Jesus and let him be the one that transforms us. And that's going to mean all of us coming authentic and broken, whether we think that our brokenness is culturally accepted or even accepted in the church or not. We all come as those that know that Jesus paid the ultimate penalty and none of us is beyond the grace of God. And we come together to place ourselves before the feet of Jesus. If you're here and you have questions that you don't feel like you've been able to ask or struggles that you've not been able to bring to those who know Jesus, either for you or for someone else, let me apologize on behalf of the church and on behalf of pastors. Jesus left the church behind so that the world can see Jesus, not so that they can know what we're against. But I also want you to know that we will pursue the image of God together. One of our, or our first value as a church, you might have seen it on the wall, is the gospel of grace. And the way, what we mean by that is Jesus accepts you for exactly who you are, but he loves you too much to keep you there. Everyone is welcome with all of their brokenness. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says you will not leave unchanged. The power of what Jesus has done is life transforming. And as we pursue the image of God together through the gospel and through the grace that God gives to us, we will be more and more changed into his image, into the image that God has given us. Love does not simply mean acceptance. The world would define love as you need to accept me for who I am. Love does not mean acceptance. Love means receiving the image of God together, putting our arms around each other, and being transformed together by the grace of Jesus. And as we continue to receive the image of God and push into knowing Jesus more, that's what's going to happen among us. And my prayer is that the world would see it, not because they come here, but because they see you as you're being transformed. And we begin to bring Jesus even to the hard and uncomfortable things to talk about in this city and in this world. 
As I stated earlier, Scripture does not define exactly what it means to be in the image of God. And that means that there is no measuring stick that we can take to anyone in this world and put up and say, yeah, you are more in the image of God and you are less in the image of God. What we see in being a part of the image of God means we can't think too highly of ourselves and we can't think too lowly of ourselves. There is no race or socioeconomic status or temptation or struggle or language or nationality that is any better or any worse than anyone else around us. We all get our dignity as humanity from the image of God, not from what we've done, not from what we've earned, not from our education or our family or our money or our legacy, but only because we are made in the image of God. And though sin has tarnished it, Jesus has come to restore it. And that is what we will pursue together. Again, Christopher Watkins says this, being in the image of God prevents us from assuming the burden of defining ourselves. It reminds us that we are not the final court of appeal and questions about our own identity. And what we're to do is to lean in and trust the loving, generous, abundant creator that has given us everything that we need. And instead of trying to take the burden to define ourselves, we get to lean in and receive the image of God that he has given us. Our last point, I don't have near as much time to be able to talk about, though I wish I did. The image of God has been given purpose. Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The purpose of humanity is clear. Again, this is before sin. This has come into the world. This is the perfect purpose that God has given to humanity. It's to fill the earth and subdue it. We've already looked at what does it mean to be caretakers and stewards of this world. That's what the subdue it means. But right here in the beginning, in the first chapter of the Bible, we get to see the global loving heart of God. Part of his original purpose was that the earth would be filled with the image of God. That there would be an abundance of people all over the globe that would know him and worship him. Right from the beginning of the story, we see that God is a God of the world. God is a God of the nations. That God wants everyone, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to worship him. And one of the greatest effects of sin, and by greatest I mean in intensity, not in goodness. One of the greatest effects of sin is that it is now very difficult for the image of God to come back to know God because of all of these different languages and all of the ways in this world that people have a gap between them and God, which is why we're ascending church. And we're going to get more and more into that as we go through Genesis. But this purpose also shows us why marriage is to be between a man and a woman. Another hot button issue for us right now. Last week, we saw this in verse 24 of chapter 2. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The purpose that God has given us as male and female is not just about us. Marriage does not exist primarily for our happiness and our pleasure. We get companionship, we get happiness, we get pleasure, we get all of these things that marriage provides for us in a healthy, safe, covenant-keeping connection that we call marriage. 
but it's given for something greater than ourselves. If God's purpose for humanity is to fill the earth with his image, then that shows us that the marriage needs to be between a man and a woman because procreation is central to what God is doing. Now, if you're a couple and you're married and you don't have kids or can't have kids, that doesn't mean that you're missing something. But it does show us that this unit of marriage is God's intention to fill the world. And in order for procreation to happen, it has to be between a man and a woman. And that shows us that marriage, as the Bible talks about it, is not just an outdated, antiquated principle. It's actually missional. Marriage helps us accomplish the purpose that God set out for humanity. Gosh, there's so much that could be said about all of these things. But I want to bring us back to the three things that I told us we need to take away as we go through this message today. The first is that I want us to reflect on the fact that we've been conformed to the world. And I hope you've gotten a a taste of that, that you've seen that that really is indeed true. And it leads you to reflect more on how we've been discipled by this world. The second is to see that we are made in the image of God and reflect on what that means for us. I hope you've experienced that. But the last thing that we need to see is what do we do when those two realities collide? What do we do when the feelings and desires inside of us, because we're conformed to this world, collide with what the image of God means? And the reality is, the more you pursue to receive the image of God, the more you will face a battle. And the scriptures talk about this battle on three fronts, the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we receive the image of God, instead of being conformed to this world, the world will spit on us, will malign us, will cancel us, will feed us to the lions. And when I say world, I don't mean we need to fight against the culture. I mean the external forces that are coming at us, trying to shape us and trying to get us to buy into a worldview that is not from the scriptures. And the world, as we receive the image of God, those external pressures will constantly fall in on us to conform or to be quiet. So how do we fight on that battle? Again, not fighting the world, not fighting the culture, but how do we fight against those external pressures that are coming on us? Well, we fight it with community. We need each other. We need a group of people that together are laying aside our conflict and laying aside our desire to be right. And we would be a forgiving, peace-seeking, unifying community. Because when we leave this place, the world will crush in. But together, we get to stand and say, no, this is the truth. This is the image of God. And here, we will stand. That's why we gather every Sunday morning. That's why we do community groups. That's why we're having our, our Segan family lunch next Sunday. Because we need to know each other and be in each other's lives and have this be the one place where we don't have to wear a mask. Because we know that we can all bring our brokenness. Because if the gospel is true, if the fact that Jesus knows who we are, knows what we've done, knows the sin inside of us, and still came to die on the cross for us, then we are way more broken and sinful than we even realize. But we're also more loved than we ever dare imagine. And because of that, 
we can bring whatever brokenness is within us to a place where we can stand together. The second battlefront the scriptures talk about is the flesh. The flesh is the internal struggle, the gap between the things that I desire to do that is against the things that the word of God says. And every single one of us in this room has things that we want to do, that we desire to do, that is against and contrary to the word of God. Some of them may be more acceptable in the culture or in the church than others, but equally broken before a perfect and holy God. And here's a reality that is really hard to swallow, but important that we understand. You cannot defeat your flesh on your own. You don't have the power within you, but that's why God gave you the Holy Spirit. We fight the flesh with the Spirit of God. Through faith in Jesus, through believing by faith that he died on the cross and rose from the dead and gives us his presence, eternity, and his spirit, we have what we now need inside of us to fight the battle. I don't have time to run through what that looks like and how to do that, but several months ago, we went through a series on Romans 5 through 8, and if you want more tools about how to do that, I encourage you to go on Spotify and listen to our Romans chapter 8 sermons because we talked about what does it look like to walk by the spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. The third battlefront is the devil. The devil is real and he is an enemy that is constantly before us and he is the father of lies and he will constantly whisper into our ears telling us, hey, God's holding out on you. God has more good that he just doesn't want you to have. It would be better for you if you just listened to your feelings and just did what you wanted. We're going to see that temptation in real time next week when we begin Genesis 3 and see how the devil comes in the form of a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve. But how do you fight the battle on that front? You fight it with the word of God. And that's why we study what's true instead of just the counterfeits. Because the word of God can speak louder than the lies that are whispered and that we believe. And we need to get it increasingly in us, which again is why we meet on Sundays. It's why we meet in community groups. And it's why we do the chapel Bible reading plan so that you can have the tools to to guard your mind and arm yourself with the word of God. The battle will always be before us. But I don't want you to leave without hope. And I don't want you to leave full of anxiety over this. As Jesus was gathered together with his followers on the night that he was to be betrayed, he talked about a lot of things. A lot of things that were going to be scary that they would encounter, a lot of things that were going to be difficult. It was going to be a hard life for them. They knew that based on what he said. But then he said this, chapter 16 of John, verse 33. I have told you these things so that you, in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The more we are conformed to this world, the less encouraging that verse will be. Because as we're conformed to the world, we begin to assume that if God is good, that means my life is going to be good and easy. 
But the more we receive the image of God as our identity, the more our eyes will be fixed on Jesus. And that's because that's the whole reason that Jesus came, to restore that which was broken and to restore that which the world, the flesh, and the devil is trying to keep broken. And so Jesus comes after each of those enemies. He comes into our world, into our mess, to experience all of the things that are coming at us as the external pressures. And the scriptures say he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And the devil was constantly whispering in his ear, trying to get him to circumvent the plan that God had for him and to believe that God wasn't good. And in each of these ways, he perfectly defeated our enemies on his way to the cross to die the death that we deserved, to rise from the dead to give us new life, to secure for all eternity the destination of those who would believe in Jesus, where finally the world, the flesh, and the devil will be no more. And he rose from the dead to defeat our final enemy of death itself. And so we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus as the one who will defeat all of these enemies. We look to Jesus for the strength to stand in a world that will constantly try to push us down. And we look to Jesus to know that he is the all-satisfying treasure. He is the one that meets every need. He is the one that has defeated every enemy. And he is the one that secured the ultimate victory. And he's invited us to join him. As we go through this life, as hard as it may be. And so for those of you in this room who have trouble, which is all of us, We look to Jesus because of what he has accomplished for us. And we endeavor to show this city and this world that he is good and he is all satisfying. We pray for us. God, we're so grateful for Jesus. We know that we can't defeat these enemies on our own, but you already have. And though we go through this life and it may be difficult and we may have desires that we have to suppress and we may have to have battles that we need to fight and we may have things that are confusing. God, we stand on the truth that Jesus is all we need, that Jesus is all satisfying, that Jesus has given us the victory. And I pray for all of us, including myself, that we would grow in not just knowing you, but treasuring you because you really have given us everything that we need. And as we come to communion, I pray that you would give us grace and a moment to have our eyes fixed back on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.